0: This is
1: Philip. And this is Robert.
0: We're finishing up our series on LBJ versus Nixon. This is going to be part five in our ninth episode overall, so we appreciate our uh, listeners. We did finish up on LBJ last episode, so we're going to go and begin with a context segue to kind of get our listeners back oriented to what we're talking about. So do you want to begin there?
1: So in the ending to our last segment, we discussed the turmoil uh, that was engulfing the United States during 1968. Uh, Numerous historians have compared 1968 to 1848 as a year of great uh, internal turmoil and civil disorder. 1848 was a revolutionary year in Europe in which many radical people tried to revitalize the humanistic and political uh, ideals of the French Revolution. In 1968, the Chinese uh, were engaged in a revival of Maoism. The Europeans were rioting in the streets in a rejection of the post-World War II leadership there. And in the United States, the liberal consensus, which had been the predominant political doctrine since the election of Roosevelt and the New Deal was rapidly coming unraveled with disparate elements of the American electorate finding themselves increasingly confrontational and violent, uh, ranging from uh, segregationist resistance uh, among white Americans to uh, black power militancy in urban ghettos and other African-American cantons or pockets uh, of the United States. Uh, This was also a period of high crime with burglaries, uh, car thefts, armed robbery, crimes against persons at a very high level. The huge youth cohort uh, coming of age at the time uh, presented a large uh, amount of people for uh, induction into criminal activities which society wasn't in any way prepared to deal with. And the United States was becoming increasingly embroiled in a frustrating and more and more uh, palpably unwinnable conflict in Southeast Asia. So Richard Nixon ran uh, with a secret plan to settle the Vietnam War and with a law and order uh, outlook for domestic policy. So he won the 1968 election with one of the smaller pluralities recorded in American elections uh, without much to spare in the electoral college with a third party segregationist candidate, George Wallace, who was whipping up uh, segregationist and racist attitudes to a frenzy. And with Hubert Humphrey the liberal democratic candidate uh, leading liberal democrats towards a very negative and uh, rejectionist view towards political moderation and towards the institutions which we depend on for uh, government and for peaceful uh, transactions what? and peaceful resolution of disputes.
0: What were the um, turnout? What was the turnout in election? Which ba- Which bases were motivated? Was there party swapping? Like uh, people that had traditionally voted one way crossing over? Was the margin big or small? What are the key states? What were the prognosticators saying beforehand?
1: A lot of questions. So, uh, 1968 in uh, many estimations is viewed as a realignment year. I mean, clearly, the Roosevelt coalition of southern segregationists, uh, labor unions, liberals, farmers, and uh, urban blacks was coming apart. The segregationists in particular were moving away from the Democratic Party en masse toward the Republican Party. And they had been pretty openly invited toward the Republican Party by uh, Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan in the 64 campaign. Ronald Reagan? Yeah. This, yeah was Reagan? Yeah. He, he ran as what? He wasn't running, but he was a big spokesperson. Was he governor For California? No, he didn't become uh, governor until 66. So he was just a celebrity spokesman? So, yeah, pretty much a celebrity spokesman. So Nixon uh, had, with a man named Harry Dent, had devised what they called the Southern Strategy, which was to combine conservatives, In the South, Uh, New South conservatives and segregationists with the traditional Republican base of Midwestern and Northeastern. This was to uh, promote Republican penetration and Republican competitiveness in the South. But also, it was to Uh, recruit more conservatives into the Republican Party because Nixon felt that the moderate and liberal factions of the Republican Party, which at that time were still very substantial, would never warm to him and never accept him as their leader. So he thought that by recruiting more rank-and-file voters into the party... Who were uh, conservative in their orientation, and by opening new uh, legislative seats in the Congress for uh, Republican candidates, that he could strengthen his position uh, and strengthen the overall conservative position in the Republican Party. So he he pursued this strategy with with great vigor, and with with with. Reasonable success. I mean, a number of senators and U.S. representatives were elected in southern states, uh, who became the first Republicans since Reconstruction to uh, first Republicans since Reconstruction to be elected. The uh, African Americans moved the opposite way. Uh, sizable Proportion of them, even as late as 1968, were still Republicans, uh, particularly among the older voters. Uh, Is
0: that was that why? Because weren't there well the Republican the Party South, weren't a lot of them in the South, and the South was predominantly um, Democratic.
1: Well, the the Southern democracy and using democracy with a capital T and referring to the Democratic organizations or the Democratic Party in the various states. The Southern democracy was segregationist, white power-oriented.
0: But there were a lot of blacks in it.
1: No, the blacks were mostly Republicans. So there
0: were no blacks in the Democratic Southern
1: Party? I mean, I, I wouldn't say no blacks, but it was still highly respectable for African Americans living in the South, to belong to the Republican Party, it was still the party of Lincoln. It was still the party of Booker T. Washington. It was still the party of emancipation, and it was still the party that resisted the Redeemer movement and uh, Jim Crow. So it, it it didn't. The Republican Party at that time did not have the same stain of racism which it has now. I mean the the Democrats like Stennis, Long, Russell, and others, Talmadge, I mean, were blatant white supremacists. And they were also the barons and the power brokers of the Southern Democratic Party. So there was a, a schizophrenic sort of feel to the parties in the South with the Republican Party which had been seen as dynamic, New South, future-oriented, trying to gain support among the old, hardline Bourbons and segregationists who had previously made up the majority of the Democratic Party. And the uh, African-Americans, seeing the the direction the Republican Party was going, going more and more towards the Democratic Party, which uh, was becoming more and more the party of civil rights and minority empowerment.
0: And was that because of the New Deal?
1: No, I think there was a, a, a change in the mood of the leadership and the Democratic rank and file stemming from the civil rights movement. I think the Republican Party saw the Civil Rights Movement as So you
0: think it really started in the 60s?
1: In the 50s.
0: Oh, the Civil Rights Movement. Yeah. In the
1: 50s. Uh, Yeah. I think the Republicans saw the Civil Rights Movement as a laudable, praiseworthy uh, uh, sort of movement. But I think the younger Democrats really, really... uh, embraced it, you know, they were the ones who were attending the newly desegregated, integrated schools by choice instead of by busing. Uh, they were the ones who were reading about the uh, civil rights marches. They were the ones who were seeing it on television. They were the ones who were signing up to go down south and do voter registration. And they were the ones who were embracing African-American music, literature, uh, drama, and the other expressions of the African-American artistic class with, with great enthusiasm. So I think there really was a, uh, a sea change among Democrats outside the South with regard to civil rights, and that, that created a great schism in the party, you know, and was, this was, I think, a big part of the uh, divisiveness at the Democratic Chicago Convention, at the Chicago Democratic Convention in 1968.
0: But the Democrats really didn't get it, didn't really get it healed, let's say, until 92.
1: Yeah, we could say that. I mean, it took it took a long time for the uh, ethnic-oriented or the white-oriented um, Democratic voters to phase out of the party and go towards Reagan. And it took even longer for the Democrats to recruit. The sort of white and black activists who uh, moved the party very strenuously and very vigorously in the direction of civil rights. I mean, these were very young people. Um, they challenged, you know, the establishment, and this was the original reason for challenging the establishment. It wasn't, you know, because they were corporate sellouts or. Any of the things that we hear nowadays. It was specifically because uh, so many of them had such a compromised history with regard to deals they had made with the segregationists to maintain the Roosevelt co- uh, coalition during the 60s and to try to maintain it into the 70s.
0: Interesting.
1: So the Dems had was this Roosevelt, real. Huh? Was
0: Ru- yeah, I could see that. Was Roosevelt. Um, oh, Was he. Personally, put off by having segregationists in his party. I mean, in his coalition, he party.
1: tried to purge the segregationists in '38 or '34. Did he
0: need them to get his winning coalition?
1: But well, they first of all, he it, he discovered he couldn't remove them because uh, the courthouse gangs so controlled who was able to vote that the electorate uh, essentially consisted of their supporters, hence the solid South. And uh, the black vote at that time wasn't that convinced of him, and they were disenfranchised. And a lot of those Southern politicians were good politicians. I mean, as much as we may recoil over the ideology of white supremacy, as political tacticians, as political mechanics, as nuts and bolts kinds of guys, they knew what they were doing, and they knew how to maintain control in their, in their own areas, and they did quite effectively. <clears throat> so the Democratic Party had a real problem in uprooting them, and eventually uh, failed. And the, uh, the Republicans took over the, the white South, and given the large majority of white voters in the South, became the dominant party in the South. And Nixon Nixon realized that this was going on. He had good personal relations with Stennis and Russell, Long and the rest of them. And he uh, capitalized on those good relations to uh, introduce environmental reforms, industrial development, uh, educational programs, and other sorts of federal policies which they could support, which didn't so, necessarily engage increasing black participation. So I've
0: heard. I've heard critics say that Nixon dog whistle to those people. Would you compare? Would you? Would you compare it to courting a David
1: Duke type? So I would, I would tend to reject Nixon's, uh, any, any, any argument whose thesis is that Nixon personally engaged or continenced uh, segregationist views. I think Nixon, I mean Nixon, I don't just think it, Nixon was a Quaker he was raised in a household that believed in yeah. racial equality. He uh, probably, in his mind, thought of himself as uh, an egalitarian with regard to race. Uh, but he was also a uh, calculating political deal maker and he wasn't going to go up against John Stennis or one of the other segregationist barons of the Senate for the sake of opposing him I mean he might oppose him on a particular issue uh, to establish his dominance but he wasn't going to do it on a on an ideological grounds I mean Nixon, thought that he could woo the Southern conservatives, who also were the arch-segregationists, and that with their support in the House and in the Senate, he could hammer out a non-racial, bipartisan, conservative agenda for American government and politics.
0: But Nixon didn't win a lot of the Southern Bloc.
1: But uh, he he didn't win it himself, but he set up the conditions for the Republican Party to dominate. Well, I understand
0: what you're saying he set it forward, but I'm saying
1: and he, he didn't and in that election and for the sake of passing his agenda, he did get considerable help from the Southern legislators, the conservative Southern legislators, and he eroded the Democratic base.
0: Would you say that Nixon um, working with those legislators is equivalent to working with the David Duke today?
1: No. No. Um, one of the things that is hard for younger Americans to accept is that well into the 80s, mildly segregationist or mildly chauvinistic in in terms of, you know, uh, white superiority or something like that, uh, attitudes were very mainstream and respectable. I mean, there was... uh, you would hear continuous References to Western cultural values, or the European cultural heritage, or the Western cultural uh, ideals, or Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo-Christian morality, or the Judeo-Christian culture, and in the context of the times, it meant a a specific body of ethical and moral ideas with a particular history, but it also oriented people towards Europe and towards white culture. So there uh, wasn't a sense of the bigness, the openness, the diversity of American culture Stemming from many sources, you know, from indigenous peoples, uh, first peoples, from uh, African American experience, from Chicano. Certainly not from Asians who are still excluded by law, by law. So uh, there was a much narrower outlook, much less uh, of an idea of the validity. Of the, you know, what were termed in the anthologies and the discussions of the time, the other voices of the American experience, other being non white voices. And even that terminology, I mean, we didn't say people of color back then. Uh, the people of color were referred to by the, the, Negator, negatory term of non white. So it it, it it wasn't the same mindset.
0: All right. I mean I, it's strange to me to conflate Western tradition and Judeo Christian heritage, which are popular phrases even now with white supremacy, but I think it's a bigger discussion.
1: Well let's 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 not go away from that so quickly. So in postmodernism, we can view the Western framework as a particular schema, shared schema uh, of of cultural references, literary, uh, literary works, drama, and an ethos that we can define as the Western cultural heritage. And as Westerners, we can draw on that as our dominant uh, mental paradigm and contribute to the world culture in that way. That wasn't the way we looked at it back then. I mean, back then it was pretty much uh, Western values were seen as the universal values that they uh, required only a little adaptation for uh, applicability to other cultures or to subcultures within the United States. So there there was a covert sense of superiority. Yeah,
0: but just because you have a sense of superiority, like you feel your value... first of all, you feel your value system makes sense to you, or you feel your value system is better than another value system. There's nothing innately incorrect about that. That's not to say that another value system doesn't have uh, like let's say valuable things to add or it doesn't make sense for another group of people. The idea in postmodernism that no value system can approach the truth that the value systems that need to be heard are marginalized value systems because those are the ones that haven't been heard and that basically we need to deconstruct the western values to me is like it's, it's a, the heritage is already breaking down and you're just speeding up the process I don't see it as particularly valuable
1: well the deconstruction has value in expanding the uh, expanding the consciousness of the implications and the origins of western ideas I mean if We think that there's a certain degree of political expediency in Socrates' uh, construction of a republic, that he serves his class value to a certain extent. That does not diminish from his idea, nor does it uh, diminish the applicability of the ideas of integrity based on civic virtue that he extrapolated. But it does give us a sense of the limits of those ideas, their weaknesses, the contradictions within. Yeah,
0: but you're still what you're basically talking about is modernism that's been humbled by postmodernism. You're not talking about postmodernism. No,
1: I don't think postmodernism requires that marginalized.
0: Yeah, it does. It says the first, the first uh, axiom of postmodernism is that there's no overarching meta narrative, and then after that, that those who claim to do that are oppressing other people groups, and that those people groups and sets of values need to be uh, validated and need to be pushed into the mainstream so that they can a be a
1: meta narrative is not the same. As, yes, it is. It's a comprehensive
0: worldview. That's what you're talking about.
1: It's not the same as claiming there are deontological values and virtues which derive their value from their own, from their own esteem, from their own value. But in any case, you know, we're getting off the track about history and about Nixon. Nixon's time did not have this discussion. Nixon's time the assumption was that the overarching western viewpoint was the correct viewpoint and the other viewpoints were critiques
0: it's it's to me it's also kind of self-defeating among modern let's say certain sectors of modern society when they automatically go into a discussion with foreign powers thinking that their viewpoint is incorrect, it's like, "Why are you having this discussion if you're if you because the foreign powers are oftentimes not as self as self-critical as Western thought is, and they go in thinking that their viewpoint is correct, and the Western thinkers are going in with much less stable views of their own, and then it's like. They're like looking to lose. It's like so, looking so, to lose So straight.
1: that's a very Nixonian point of view. So Nixon had served in the South Pacific as a young man, as a naval officer who actually was promoted a number of times for meritorious service. And Nixon had direct, firsthand, lengthy experience with the foreign cultures that he encountered on several islands in the South Pacific. I mean, they were islands which were under U.S. uh, I'm trying to think of all the islands he went to. But uh, even though we had legal jurisdiction there, most of the islands that he served on, the culture, the uh, local cultures were intact and if not dominant, they were definitely intact and visible, and a number of them also had a large population of Asian people living there and still had their cultures intact. So as a young man, Nixon had encountered those foreign cultures. As vice president, he traveled widely and was faced with the challenge the communists presented to Western liberal democracy and took the idea that we weren't going to surrender our claims of validity and even superiority in the face of the claims made by the communists and by the various uh, liberation groups which were springing up in the world at that time in which he had to contend with as president. I mean, Nixon very stoutly defended the idea that uh, Western civilization, and particularly the American variant of it, was one of the most advanced, valid, and valuable uh, thought systems that had been devised, and he, and he, he was very, very convinced of that, and defended it very ably and very uh, actively.
0: So, go into, because this, we're trying to hone in on Vietnam, Nixon takes over with the situation in Vietnam, he goes in knowing, knowing that he wants to stop communism he goes in on a platform that he's going to do what?
1: Well, he had a secret plan. To stop the... For peace with honor. Right, okay. So... But he doesn't execute it. Well, the 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 empirical facts are still...
0: Wait, wait, I'm sorry. There's another thing that I think I was listening to where Nixon was talking about how he wouldn't... Something about the negotiation. He wouldn't give up. He wanted... LBJ to have as much leverage as possible, going in, he didn't want to tip his hat in any way, and he felt that Humphreys was vacillating on the issue.
1: There's 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 very strong evidence to that. There's a lot of a lot of press, uh, Hugh Sidey, uh, uh Time Magazine correspondent, being kind of typical of it. Uh, he wrote one of the long one-page essays that Time Magazine used to publish uh, exploring the question of whether or not LBJ preferred that Richard Nixon succeed him as president rather than Hubert Humphrey, his own vice president and the Democratic uh, candidate. And Saidi pointed out numerous uh, personal meetings between Johnson and Nixon and Johnson changing some of his positions to uh, facilitate Nixon's uh, Nixon's gathering of the reins of power, should he win the election, and uh, some statements in which LBJ seemed to have more uh, seemed to have a vision of a, of a of a victory in Vietnam, more consonant with Nixon's view than with Humphrey's. Uh, But I think, as I was beginning to say, I think the empirical facts are still poorly understood and can lead to many interpretations. Uh, The interpretation which I favor and which which rests in study of the North Vietnamese documents of the time is that the pacification program, which the United States initiated in late 1967 was beginning to bear fruit and was effectively undercutting Viet Cong uh, penetration and Viet Cong control in the countryside in Vietnam. And after the Tet Offensive, in which the Viet Cong were virtually destroyed as a military force, Uh, the more effective pacification programs, which the American uh, Military Assistance Command in Vietnam was implementing, seemed to be gaining great traction. So I think it's a defensible argument to make that had Humphrey been elected president in 1968, the U.S. military position would have been strong enough to permit... uh, de-escalation and withdrawal. Nixon, as far as I can determine, went into the presidency without a plan. I mean, the Peace with Honor formulation was just a slogan that he put forward so that he wouldn't have to commit himself to anything. And he was uh, cagey enough or political enough that he was able to pick up on and say, I don't want to tip my hand. So he was able to disguise that he had no actual plan, that he was going to go and improvise. What
0: options was he looking at?
1: Uh, Option one would have been continued escalation, continued commitment of more American forces
0: that, was off. Pot- that could have been off. had to be off the
1: table, no? Potentially reaching to three-quarters of a million to a million and a half Americans engaged in direct combat. Uh, the second was the continuation in slow erosion, continuation of American force levels at the then-current level. Which were what, 500? Uh, we had about 650,000 personnel in Vietnam, and about a fifth of them were engaged in combat. So 150,000, 175,000. Okay. And the continued slow erosion of the South Vietnamese political and military uh, position. Uh, third one was to basically concede and withdraw. And the fourth one, which Nixon chose, was Vietnamization, which was that American uh, forces would diminish their combat engagement with the North Vietnamese, and that the South Vietnamese Army, the ARVN, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and the other Vietnamese armed forces would take on a greater and greater combat role against the North Vietnamese Army and the difficulty with the Vietnamization plan was that there was no political base for a Vietnamese government or a Vietnamese Army in South Vietnam. I mean the uh, Thieu government and the government of the various generals who preceded him and Thieu himself was a high-ranking general. Uh, they just had no, no, no political base among the Vietnamese. I mean, they were seen as people who were put in power and kept in power by the American military mission there and by American foreign aid. And the Vietnamese were just unwilling to commit themselves to uh, supporting them. There's a large number of Vietnamese living in this country now, and uh, I would characterize them still, I mean, even young people among them, as super anti communist. I mean, a lot of them are Roman Catholics. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was very strong in Vietnam, particularly in South Vietnam. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was always very anti communist. Uh, and a fairly large number of the South Vietnamese were uh, French-oriented, Western-oriented.
0: So Vietnamization means what exactly?
1: means training Vietnamese officers and NCOs, what we call the cadre of the army, into American methods, training them to use American weaponry, logistical supply, uh, transport, aircraft and so on and uh, slowly devolving all combat uh, capability from American units to the Vietnamese
0: But they were going to lose the war
1: It wasn't obvious to anybody in the American government uh, in the late 60s or in the early 70s that the South Vietnamese, South Vietnamese were gonna lose the war. I mean, we were putting a boatload of money, you know, as much as $60 billion a year, which back then probably was a third of the, of the budget and which was a huge amount of money in, into South Vietnam. We had uh, uh, close to three quarters of a million men on the ground and on the sea in Vietnam and in maybe as many as another two and a half million people supporting them directly in the war industry in the United States. And I mean, when
0: did it become clear that they were going to lose?
1: Probably like when the North Vietnamese Army marched into through Saigon with tanks. In 72? Yeah, I mean, well it was later than that, it was 74. Maybe so was.
0: Nixon, So when Nixon gets out of office in 73, he, st- they st- he still thinks Move forward to that point in time. What is the thing at Vietnam? How is it different than it was earlier on?
1: So, by 73, there had been an election in South Vietnam. President Chu had been re-elected, even though he only had 38, 39% of the vote. Chu um, had a, apparently a good rapport with Nixon. Uh he was highly regarded in the nixon administration nixon had gone to china and was in the process of reestablishing diplomatic and commercial relations with the people's republic of china détente with the soviet union was in full swing uh west germany the Benelux countries, and to a lesser extent, the other European NATO allies, were doing brisk business with the Russians. The Russians uh, were orbiting with uh, space station, space the Soyuz uh, space station. We were beginning to uh, discuss joint missions astronauts meeting cosmonauts in the space station and doing orbital uh, research. So Nixon, at that point, was at the height of his popularity. He had won a huge election. You know, I remember the bumper sticker, you know, don't blame me, I'm from Massachusetts, referring to the 1972 election in which Nixon won the Electoral College in all of the states except for Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. Um, And Nixon had shepherded through Congress the 13 major legislative acts which are the foundation of American progressivism and uh, the social uh, safety net, environmentalism and most of the things which we view as progressive, uh, the progressive agenda today. So Nixon, by the time Watergate hit him and he had to resign, had uh, a record, a tremendous record of accomplishment and uh, had huge world stature. What was, what was he facing in Vietnam? So the South Vietnamese Army probably had a, a million and a quarter men and probably 650,000 of them were relatively dependable and showed up and would obey orders and dependably. Uh, U.S. military command Vietnam as I mentioned had about six hundred fifty thousand soldiers with maybe twenty percent of them people we could send into combat. Uh, The rest support troops. Uh, There were two maybe divisions of South Korean army engaged one of them being their famous White Horse Division. The Australians had a number of brigades engaged. Uh, So the Free World Forces were fairly outnumbered. The uh, Viet Cong military capability had been destroyed at Tet, never rebuilt, so the North Vietnamese were for the most part, carrying the load of combat. And by the time Nixon took office, the supply and so called infiltration routes through Laos, Cambodia, and the northern provinces of South Vietnam were open, were passing tons and tons of ammunition, food, and other material through them were regularly resupplying the massive losses of of combat troops that the South Vietnamese were, or I'm sorry, that the North Vietnamese were incurring in the face of American air power. And the North Vietnamese were successfully uh, meeting and defeating the American and the South Vietnamese uh, formations that they had to fight. I mean, even in in the instances when Americans won battles, the battles which we won were fought in remote areas that had very little strategic or tactical value. I mean, they were, you know, rock'em, sock'em, full-on combat encounters uh, with horrible wounds uh, uh, inflicted on men on both sides. The worst, in my opinion, being uh, the napalm, which we dropped on the Vietnamese, and the numerous landmines which the Vietnamese developed and used against us, which inflicted just horrible wounds on the men who encountered them. Uh, so, you know, there was this bloody struggle going on, and and we were clearly losing the hearts and minds of the of the Vietnamese people, in both north and south.
0: Why why wasn't the Vietnam War taking a toll on Nixon politically the way it took a toll on LBJ politically?
1: That's a good question. So. Nixon started off with a much lower public approval rating than LBJ did. LBJ's handling of the succession from JFK was masterful and pushed his approval into the mid to high 60s. Nixon came into office with approval in the mid to high 40s. And Nixon worked very hard to maintain his base and to keep his approval rating in that range. But he really wasn't very successful in getting it much above that. There was, uh, the realignment was going on. So for the people he gained in the South, and in other regions. He lost people in the Northeast and on the West Coast, his home area. Uh, the war was very divisive and uh, opened up a generational gap of disapproval of the government and Nixon with uh, probably still, even, even, even the quiet Uh, law and order type uh, young people, conservatives, didn't really warm to Nixon because of his epic uncoolness and the uh, 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 the intense opposition he evoked from young people. And then the parents of those people also were at best lukewarm in supporting Nixon because of the vehement disapproval they got from their own kids if they expressed uh, positive views of Nixon. So he was really kind of stuck at a rather low uh, popularity or approval ceiling. Uh, But because everything was in such flux and because the Democratic Party was in Extreme disarray, and didn't really have popular figures of its own to offer in opposition to Nixon. The opposition to him never never coalesced either, so he he didn't really get the kind of universal uh, left and right. What was widespread disapproval that Johnson got?
0: What was Nixon's? I mean, he had. He'd been in the military. What was his? He was in the navy. What was his feelings on use of force, and how was he as a as a tactician and a strategist militarily? So, did he consider himself a military man?
1: No. But he was so overshadowed by by Eisenhower that you know there was no way he could style himself a military man. Uh. Henry Kissinger. Did he hold all those
0: slides very close to his heart? Yeah. The Eisenhower slide. Yeah. Yeah. Nixon. Nixon was
1: ultra sensitive. Okay. But um, Henry Kissinger postulated the Mad Bomber theory, the idea that Nixon was liable to open up. The whole U.S. arsenal to counterattack from battlefield reversals in Vietnam. I mean, he was, and 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 they were fairly convincing in making the communist bloc countries think that Nixon was willing to expand the conflict globally. In uh, Nixon employed the full Penelope of US power. I mean, there were B-52 raids on Cambodia. Um, uh, An area of South Vietnam the size of Massachusetts was chemically defoliated. The trees were uh, treated with a highly carcinogenic chemical which made the leaves fall off so that US aircraft passing overhead could look down at a clear forest and spy out enemy formations or enemy fortifications and call in massive aerial bombardments on them. So uh, Nixon, Nixon really did to a chilly extent live up to that mad bomber uh, uh, handle that uh, Kissinger devised for him. And conversely, Nixon engaged in a full court diplomatic uh, offensive to open up the communist countries to trade with the west to cultural exchanges to defuse a lot of the hostility and militancy that he was demonstrating in southeast asia so i mean it and it, it there was a real strong carrots and sticks approach in nixon's uh, foreign policy
0: all right Talk. About, we're, we're running low on time, so talk about a, a short comparison as military minds and presidents, just as a recap, LBJ and Nixon, and then the resolution of the Vietnam War, and then any lessons we have to learn from the Vietnam War.
1: All right, so... I, uh, maybe L- we'll take about 10 minutes. LBJ was uh, a, pol- a political operator and political maneuver of a stature and a diligence and a consummate skill, which is almost unparalleled in American history. I mean, you have to look at somebody like Henry Clay to find another operator like Johnson. But that degree of political workmanship is very consuming. I mean, you have to be doing it all the time you don't think of anything else. So Johnson was very good at what he did, but it was a very highly specialized skill set and didn't readily expand into the other uh, aspects of governing and was not well suited for executive action. Nixon had a much broader experience. He had a good liberal education. He went to a highly regarded law school and was a diligent student. Learned the law uh, very well. Served as an administrator in the New Deal early in his career after graduating from law school. Uh, Served in the U.S. Navy. And served in uh, an administrative, served in administrative positions, but uh, positions close to the front lines, positions where he had he wasn't engaged in combat, but he saw firsthand the results of combat, and he probably saw some some aspects of combat, you know, aerial bombardments and so on like that. So. And then when he came back, he served two terms in the House, uh, was elected to the Senate, served two years in the Senate, and then became vice president, where he was exposed to the entire workings of the government at a very high echelon, uh, from a very high echelon position. So Nixon was very well-rounded, very experienced, and he just had a scintillating intellect. I mean, he was a very, very intelligent man. And he was able to grasp it all. Yeah. And he had a very very well grounded and balanced emotional life. Uh, he had a happy marriage he had two daughters who uh apparently had good relationships with both of them had a very happy home life, satisfying uh domestic life. so he really brought his whole person into leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Johnson, who was a conniver all the way through, you'd always see one side of Johnson, right? But not the whole yeah. Johnson. Yeah. And you know, with Nixon, I mean, he was not a complicated, Well, he was a complicated man, but uh, he had a a, a, a normal life. Uh, so when Nixon when Nixon became president, he 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 really was one of the more able and well prepared. People to become president, and he served at a difficult time, and he acquitted himself, with the exception of Watergate, very honorably. Now, Watergate presents the big quandary in understanding Nixon.
0: We don't have time. Okay, let's we'll, we'll go into more detail on Nixon as a person and president in a future episode. What the last thing we have to touch on before we finish up our series on LBJ vs Nixon? and their handling of Vietnam is what lessons do we take as a country about Vietnam and how did Vietnam
1: resolve? Well, we clearly had the worst the nightmare scenario come true. The North Vietnamese Army marched into Saigon with main force units, humiliatingly drove out the Americans, and then the entire Southeast Asian Peninsula was subjected to communist indoctrination and re education for like fifteen years, killing killing tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, dislocating millions, and generally, you know, fulfilling all the bad things we said about the communists. So the idea of they're still being totalitarians, there's still being demons in the world is true. Uh, for me the lesson of Vietnam is the disapplicability, the, the way that military force redounds to our demise. Uh, we engaged our best forces, our best combat units in Vietnam. We gave them pretty much everything they asked for. We devoted enormous natural resources, or uh, national resources to that war. And we never achieved the level of violence And military effort which was required to defeat the Vietnamese I mean you know and and a big part of it was that we so dramatically underestimated the Vietnamese their will to fight their capability and their stoicism in the face of really horrendous casualties and damage to their country They just, I mean, they just took everything we hit them with and came back and came back and came back. Mm-hmm. So the, the lesson is really that we have to realize that foreign peoples have their own cultures, their own sense of identity, uh, an intense sense of loyalty and devotion to their homelands, and that it's highly unlikely that we will ever overpower them militarily. Uh, the second the less of the second world war notwithstanding I mean in that case we were fighting total wars and we were fighting against very organized very highly regimented enemies uh, and we crushed them but to crush other countries in the same manner would really mean a war of annihilation against them which I don't think any American would Yeah, which I think is a, a good thing for us yeah. so I think the lesson for Vietnam is that we should depend more on soft power uh, the Chinese model of of diplomacy is probably better engage in business engage in cultural uh, activities uh, you know win friends by making money together yeah uh, it's more self-supporting is more prosperous. It's just it's just a better way of doing things, and I think that has to be the main lesson of Vietnam: the, the immense failure of our military mission. And you know, in modern times, we see uh, the contrast of what the Chinese are doing with our with our military mission.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this um, segment and for this little mini series. We put up our next. Uh, President, I think we're not quite decided on. We were talking about a little bit about Eisenhower, a little bit, but but maybe we've just been a lot in that time period. Some about McKinley. Any other ideas about who you might want to cover? Well, I like Polk. Polk. That'd be perfect, actually. So maybe we'll go ahead and do Polk next. And the Mexican War. Yeah. There you go. All right. Thanks again for listening. I'm Philip.
1: And I'm Robert. And have a great evening. Here, here.